Happy June, y'all. Happy June, y'all. <laughs> if you're visiting, thank you so much. I'm Peter. And you know, if you're visiting for the first or a thousandth time, good morning and happy June again. Uh, we are near the end of our study in the book of Judges. It's been wild and tense. And today we get to the, really, I would consider the anti-hero of the book, Mighty Samson. Now, Samson's life here, full of sex and violence and betrayal and sex and violence, has all the makings of the the blockbuster action thriller. So I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet with me, and we're going to discover Samson in God's Word. We stand to our feet to honor God's Word. I'm going to start in chapter 13, verse 24. I'll go all the way through the next chapter to uh, verse 7. Here we go. And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew, and the Lord blessed him. And the spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Manechadan, between Zorah and Eshtal. Samson went down to Timnah. And at Timnah, he saw, everyone say, he saw. He saw saw one of the young daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and his mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now, get her for me as my wife. But his father and his mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all the people, our people, that you must go and take a wife of the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. His father, said, his father and his mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. Now, we'll come back to what that verse means. But uh, going forward, verse 5, Then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah, and they came to the vineyards of Timnah. And behold, a young lion came toward him, roaring, Then the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces with his hands, as one would tear a young goat. And he did not tell his father and his mother what he had done. Verse 7, and he went down and talked with with the woman, and she was right in Samson's eyes. God's word. Thank you. Y'all can be seated. Lord, please add a Supernatural blessing to the reading of your word. Amen. So here we go. Before we get further into Samson's life, I want to see if we can have a little family huddle moment. Can we do that? Uh, I understand that things have been a little intense and uh, verging on uncomfortable in this series in Judges. And I need you to know that it's not my desire to just you know, to discomfort you with my preaching or, or any of that. Um, but I'm going to address that a little bit more at the end of the message. And I, I want you to bravely plunge into Samson's story, which is hard and gets harder, knowing that, you know, from the ugliest places in people's lives and in your life, you can get your greatest comfort in God's word. I need you to know that. In fact, as I look back through some of the most difficult uh, movies I've watched in the past. Some of my favorite movies that showed me a piece of God's heart for people came from difficult movies like American History X. I'm sitting here 
not promoting any of these movies. Uh, October Baby, I can promote that one. Um, Amazing Grace talked about and even showed some of the horrors of slavery from hundreds of years ago. And I'm going to tell you right now, it was the ugly parts of history that I saw in these movies that brought comfort and peace and a piece of God's heart for people to me. And I'm going to ask you to bravely dive into Samson's whole story here and get true refined comfort and stand with Jesus staring down ugly and seeing how he handles it in history. So again, Samson is the last of what are known as the cyclical judges in the book of Judges, where we see the cycles, the the cycles again, the cycles of sin and then oppression and then repentance and then deliverance and then a little bit of happiness and some more sin and oppression. Those cycles. With Samson, the cycles end. And you may ask, how did those cycles end with Samson? And I'll say, thank you for asking me. Here's how the cycles ended with Samson. Cycles ended with Samson, and we can see it in the seeds of the repetition of this word, the purposeful repetition in the Hebrew for what we just read. It's the word to see. In the first few verses, it says he saw, and then I saw as he's recounting his story. And then the verb comes up again in verse uh, three. He says, get her for me, for she is right in my eyes, literally right in my seeing. And then again at verse seven, she was right in Samson's eyes or his seeing. I say that this is the seeds of Israel's undoing because even after Samson is dead, this very prerogative of doing what's right in your own seeing takes a bad and destructive moment in the Israelite history and makes it even more destructive, all the while being right in their own eyes as they defiled themselves more and more. And and as far as Samson was concerned, he was just doing what pleased him to get his own personal needs met, not really knowing how that would affect other people, so much like us, so often. In fact, right after Samson is dead, it starts to talk about the further spiral of Israel, and it quotes this, these very words in, in Judges seventeen six. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. In essence, everyone did what Samson had led to. And then it describes some really ugly stuff, which I've left for Josh to preach next week. Joshua here. Uh, And at the end of the book, after all of the worst of the ugly that Samson led into, the very last verse in the Bible is an exact verbatim repetition. Chapter 21, verse 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own seeing, in his own eyes. Now, Samson's story, which led to a defilement of Israel's story really just is a sad example that one leader's flaw can really truly be exploited and multiplied down the generations. In fact, you need to know that today, brazen confidence, among other things, is still a very powerful gift, a gift that can be exploited for evil and a gift that can be redeemed for good. Now, Samson's legacy, as we've mentioned, uh, for the chapters towards the end of the book, I've already hinted that it gets really bad. And if his legacy is ugly, it leads you to think, okay, what was his life like? So let's examine Samson's life. Can we do that? 
If you remember, Samson, from last week, Samson's parents were barren. They didn't have kids. And in chapter 13, they were visited by an angel. And they were told, you are going to miraculously conceive a child, and he is going to uh, be used by God to bring a confrontation, a, a redemption from the enslavement and, and the oppression that you're facing with the Philistines. And with him, you will want him to be set apart. It's a, it's a word that really was synonymous with holy, set apart. And there was a special Nazarite vow that he was to eat no unclean thing that was already a law. But on top of that, that he was to drink nothing of the vine, no wine, not even eat grapes. And also that you were not to cut his hair. It was a special Nazarite vow setting him apart for a special purpose. His parents were to set him apart and so especially going into his marriage. They had a a special plan to protect him for, but it seems they struggled to protect Samson from himself. And that's why we pick up here. Samson is, is to follow his parents into holiness and to being set apart, this lifestyle he had for him. But he was not following his parents. He was following his eyes. And then we have this little incident with Samson and what, who he wanted to marry. He saw a woman from the camp of his enemies. You might ask, what is he doing in the vineyards of Timnah? Based on the life that we conceive the man live, it's very unlikely that he wasn't eating grapes or drinking wine. We're meant to understand that he was already in enemy territory and looking after the things of the world and looking after the, what the enemy had to offer him, especially in his greatest weakness with women. He saw this woman and his parents told him, why would you go to an uncircumcised Philistine, our enemies? And you need to know that this is not the Bible prohibiting interracial marriage. There's nothing to be said of an interracial union here. In fact, we can look back and know that Moses, the father of the the deliverer in so many ways of of the Hebrew people, his wife was a Midianite, not of the same race but actually of the same faith, which was shown in her participation to circumcise their child and participate in the set-apartness of Israel. So what you can know is that when they said, why would you go to an uncircumcised? The problem in the Bible has nothing to do with interracial union. It's interfaith union that the Bible had a problem with then and still has a problem with now. And there are a lot of people who can be concerned about interracial things, but not concerned at all about interfaith issues. That's why the New New Testament says, do not be unevenly yoked with an unbeliever. A yoke was an instrument that they used to to cause animals to have more power when they work together. The problem is, is if you have more power working together with someone going in the wrong direction, sowing the wrong fields, it's a problem. So don't be unevenly yoked is what the Bible said. And even today, you need to know that this temptation, even though we have different, different uh, ways we, we talk about idols and different contexts, we still have the same basic temptations. And when you're yoked together today in marriage or in some other covenantal contractual way to someone who has drastically different values at the core than you, different gods, as the Bible would explain them, you will be frequently pressured to surrender your own 
values. And so even if you don't externally convert to other gods when you're yoked together with someone else, you will tempt it to be internally uh, driven towards what the Bible calls idolatry. And idolatry isn't just some old-fashioned thing from the ancient world where you bow before a, a golden image or idol. It's putting other things before God, whether it's financial things or even just leisure things. Idolatry it was a, a major issue in Israel then, and it's a major issue now. And so therefore, the same care and caution about interfaith Union and idolatry is still here. And this was the literal state of Israel at the time when Samson was growing up. They were essentially intermingled and intermarried with this culture. They were participating in all the things of the culture, and this did not please God. In fact, God hated it. So much so that he was willing to do anything under his divine will to stop it. The Canaanite child sacrifice, for instance, Israel was participating with, burning their children before the altars of Molech to appease a God who was not there. They committed all sorts of heinous crimes like this, and God wanted to divide them from this intermingling of this culture. He wanted to bring the division. It's like Jesus says, don't think that I've, I've come to do anything but bring division. I've come to bring a sword. I've come to divide my people against the things that would destroy them. And God was wanting to use Samson to bring division. When Samson, and like many other people, was also guilty, like I have been so many times, of intermingling with culture around him. And you know, I've asked questions like this all throughout the series, and I'm going to ask it again. I'm going to ask you to ask the Holy Spirit to help you examine yourself. My question is this, in what ways... Have you intermingled with culture where God is wanting you to be set apart in a certain way? Set apart. Don't forget that it's our very distinctiveness from culture that positions us to be a redemptive element within culture. So what ways have you overmingled with culture? You've married into things that God's told you not to marry into. Think about that. This is where, this is the state of living that Samson and the Israelite people were, were in. Samson's marriage demand here in chapter 14 represented this really dark side of kind of living at peace with oppression. And so he's already broken, presumably, one of the big three of the Nazarite provisions. And then we get to verse 8. In, in, this, in some days, so after he had killed the lion with his bare hands, After some days, he returned to take his wife, and he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion. So maggots, nastiness, probably eating this lion up. And behold, there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and honey. He scraped it out with his hands and went on, eating as he went. And he came to his father and his mother and gave some to them. So not only is he entering into uncleanness, but he's bringing his parents into it too. He did not tell them that he had scraped honey out of the carcass of a lion. So brazenly, two out of the three of the Nazarite provisions, he's breaking. And he is defiantly breaking them here. He even goes later, he's so proud of what he knows is wrong that he throws a big party, invites 30 companions, and he he gets really enigmatic with this. He starts to tell parables and riddles here, right? He, He tells a riddle and he says, 
He says to these 30 people, he says a little bet. He says, if you can solve this riddle, I'll give you 30 changes of clothes. But if, if you can't solve it, you give me 30 changes of clothes. Very valuable in the day. And he says, out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. They couldn't solve the riddle. So they knew Samson's weakness. They asked his wife to you know, help him out a little bit. And she used all her power. She, she probably put on her nicest outfit just begged him. It says day after day, seven days in a row, she begged him, don't you love me? Please tell me the secret to the riddle. I'm sure that other companions of his offered her certain money or whatever. And it says in verse 19, the men of the city said to him after getting the secret on the seventh day out of his wife, they said, what is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? They solved the riddle. And Samson said to them, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. So there's a little idea of what Samson, how Samson sees women. It says the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him and he went down to Ashkelon. He strikes down 30 other innocent men to get their shirts. Why, why didn't he just go steal shirts? He actually kills 30 other men, takes their clothes and gives it to the men who solved his riddle. So he might be impulsive and vindictive, but at least he's murderously violent. Then we get to verse 15. Samson, after some time, he wanted some sex. It says, after some days, he went down in the wheat harvest and Samson went to his wife with a young goat. So he hadn't seen her for a while. He was, she was probably mad at him, but he wanted some love and he goes to take a little gift to get some. And he says, I will go into my wife in the chamber. But see, the problem is, is her wife's dad, after Samson not being around for a while, he saw kind of an opportunity and he gives Samson's wife to Samson's buddy. He's treating his daughter like inventory. And he, Samson comes back and says, where's my wife? He says, I already gave her away. But look, essentially, I've got more inventory here better inventory. He says, look, isn't her younger sister even more pretty? Samson really didn't like this idea. He was very frustrated that his wife was given to someone else. And in his moment of frustration, he did what many of us probably would have done. He gets, captures 300 foxes. Okay, maybe not what any of us would do. He captures 300 foxes, ties their tails together, puts a torch in between their tails, and sets them loose into the farmland and in the villages nearby burning down precious resources, farmlands, and structures. So needless to say, through Samson's craziness, there's a little bit of separation happening between the Israelites and the Philistines. There is a little bit of, uh, of enmity mounting. Huge understatement. The Philistines were not happy about this, and they came back, and they burned Verse, seven, verse 6 of chapter 15, they burned his wife and his father-in-law. He vows for revenge and goes and flees. They come after him and the men of Judah, his, uh, some more Israelites from around the way, they, they got together in huge numbers and came out to confront Samson and said, look, all your shenanigans is putting us all in danger. You need to turn yourself over. Here's what he says in verse 11. This is really interesting. They said to him, do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? 
What then is this that you have done to us? And he says to them, as they did to me, so I've done to them. In essence, he says, they started it. Sounds like a five-year-old boy or a middle-aged aspiring politician. I mean, they started it, he says. And so he says, you know what? Maybe I will surrender myself. He plays a little ruse on them. He says, just tie my hands up and I'll go. And he's delivered into Philistine camp. And he, miraculous, with miraculous power, breaks his bonds apart, finds a donkey jawbone, takes the donkey jawbone, and kills a thousand men with a jawbone. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. Verse 18, after killing all these men, it says, He was thirsty, and he called upon the Lord and said, You've granted salvation by the hand of your servant. Shall I not die of thirst? It says that the Lord proceeds to open the rock and miraculously provide water for Samson. If this isn't already a little bit difficult to stomach, like the tension here, if you don't feel the tension, let's get to verse 16. So verse 16, Samson's a little bit lonely and he goes to a nearby village that the the Israelites were supposed to have already uh, taken over, but they weren't more, more, uh, more, Philistines in, in Gaza. It says that Samson, verse 1 of chapter 16, went to Gaza, and there he saw a prostitute, and he went to have sex with her. See, just like in the start of the previous chapter, Samson wants sex, and this time he goes to a prostitute. I mean, it just is difficult, and it gets more difficult. Uh, this Wednesday in my growth group, I was reading through, you know, I had been reading through these chapters all week, and researching a lot of commentary, and I was really struggling. I'm like, can anyone show me something encouraging about Samson? Like, can anyone read through these chapters and find something, like, uplifting for me here? And I got a lot of blank stares. <laughs> and the next day, I got some, a series of, of messages from Daniel in my growth group. And uh, he says, well, you know, maybe this, you know, chapter 16, there's this point where he, you know, goes and... Uh, uh, in his loneliness, he helps a poor lady pay her bills. <laughs> and I don't know if that can be counted as a redemptive element of this story, but you definitely can't count that as a virtue for Samson. If anything, maybe a little bit humorous, but this is really difficult. He, he goes and this is the type of man he is. He's visiting prostitutes. And you know what? It was no secret to the Philistines. They, they were looking for him. And they knew where to look. It says in verse 2 that they surrounded the place and set an ambush for him. So they just knew this dude would be hanging in the, in the brothel. And they kept quiet, quiet all night. And they said, let us wait until the morning and then we'll kill him. Verse 3, but Samson lay till midnight. And at midnight he arose and took hold of the doors of the gate of the city and the two posts and pulled them up, bar and all, and put them on his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that is in front of Hebron. Okay, dude pulled a gate out of the ground with superman strength. Like Magnus Magnuson would have nothing on this dude. I actually researched this a little bit. In the gates of the ancient Philistine cities, would have been at some points multiple stories of watchmen on it. And he just took those suckers up and started walking up the hill. 
Now, in the original language here, when it says that he, he carried them to the top of the hill that is in front of Hebron, we're led to think that he is, he is going out of his, his place of, of bondage and looking upon his people, looking upon uh, lands near Jerusalem at the time. We're, we're led to think in this moment that he's, he's finally turning his back on his, his past life and using his strength to save his people. But in the next moment, he turns around and goes back down into Philistine encampments to the valley of Sorek. And why? Why was he turned? Why was his gaze turned the other way? Can anyone guess? If you guessed another woman, you would be right. It says verse 4, After this, he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. Now, Delilah, it's an interesting name. Her name might have a similar etymological root to a, a, a word in the land that really was translated to flirt. Whether or not that's the case, it's true that that's what she was very skilled at. And she used her flirtatiousness in conspiracy with the Philistines to pose the secret of Samson's strength. Multiple times she, she, would, she would woo him to sleep. And, and she would ask him to say, what's the secret of your strength? And he, he kind of played with her a little bit and said, okay, well, if you tie, if you tie like double tie, like double knot, like, uh, you know, the, the special knot with extra uh, uh, rope on my hands, like this time, like for, for serious, I am going to be just totally uh, without strength. That's the secret. And so she puts him to sleep. And then there's am- people waiting in ambush. And she says, all right, Samson. The Philistines are upon you. And they come and they're getting ready to take him over. And he just breaks those suckers right in half. And everyone's like, okay, go back. He's, he's not good. And then she tries another thing. He's like, if you braid my hair all special and tie it back in a certain way, man, this time for reals this time. And so she tries that and says, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. And dude gets up and they're like, okay, chill. He's still lying. And so she just starts begging and begging him and cries and says, don't you love me? I'm your wife. Look at me. And she just, day after day, it says, day after day, she would go to him. And after several days, he finally gives in. He finally says he shares all his heart with her. And it says in verse 18 of chapter 16, when Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, she sent and called the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up again, for he has told me all his heart. He told her the secret, that if you cut my hair, shave it straight off, I'll lose my power. That's exactly what she did. And she yells and says, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. And in a moment, he, maybe, he tries to fight back, but futilely, because he has no power left. Now, you might think that you know, the hair is gone, it says here that, that the Lord had left him. He didn't know that the Lord had left him. I don't think it was the hair being gone as much as that God just finally said, you know, enough of this. I'm relenting of my grace upon this man. And it says that they came, they bound him. He couldn't fight back. He couldn't defeat him. They grabbed him. They gouged out his eyes. They tore out his eyes. It's a little bit of poetic justice. They tore out his eyes in conspiracy with the woman he just couldn't keep his eyes off of. 
with the woman that he, he loved. It wasn't just his eyes. It was started with his eyes. And at this point, it had consumed his whole being, was in lust with this woman. And they tore out his eyes as a result. And he was bound. It says in verse 23, Now the lords of the Philistines gathered to hold a great sacrifice to Dagon, their god, and to rejoice. They said, Our god has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. They were celebrating that their God Dagon was greater than the God of the Hebrews. And they, they paraded Samson and tormented him, him for show. It says that 3,000 men were gathered on the rooftop to celebrate and to mock Samson. And then in verse 28, I think this is a, a prayer of real humility and contrition. If you can hear it, it says, Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord, please remember me and Please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I might be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars of the house on which it rested. He leaned all his weight against them, his right hand on on one side and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed with all his strength and the house fell upon the Lord's and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed in his death were far more than those whom, whom he killed in his life. Perhaps the last moment was a little brief moment of faith and contrition. The writer of Hebrews said that Samson was a man of faith. And maybe just that last prayer is all that I see real faith in. I mean, let's be honest. This, this is all really difficult, if not disturbing. I mean, when it says the spirit of the Lord rushed upon Samson and he did all these wicked and evil things, does this mean that the Bible is promoting Samson's behavior? I mean, this is a hard question, right? I'm going to demonstrate that no, it's not. And yet, I'm going to disclose that God left all the ugly stuff in there. And and in essence, that shows the authenticity of Scripture like nothing else. You look at other religious writings that kind of just like edit the hard, difficult things out. And yet the Bible here has a reason for all the ugly and a a solution to it. And that's why I want to leave you with three basic takeaways with our time remaining. Number one is this. The gifts of God are without reproach. When God gives a gift, he chooses to allow it to be received by the, the user of that gift for a time that maybe is beyond what we would think. The gifts of God are without reproach, as Romans 11 says. Why does God use Samson? Why does God let him have all this power? Why didn't he squash it? Why didn't he kill Samson before he did all the evil things? Well, why didn't God kill me before I used his gift to sin against him? Why didn't he squash my gift? Why didn't he take it back? You know, I think even from a young age, when I can look back, God gave me an evangelistic gift. And in my insecurity... Before I knew Jesus, I used that gift for my own shame and selfishness. I, I, instead of using it to point people to Christ, I used it to draw people to myself in insecurity. I used the gift against him, and yet he didn't crush me, nor the gift. Why can the world's greatest boxer openly defy God and yet still have his gift? Why can the most gifted musical artists hijack God's gifts, and then use them to mount a formation of enmity against their maker. 
And God doesn't just take the gift away immediately. Well, the answer is one day he will. It says in Hebrews 9 that it's appointed for all men to die once and then to face judgment. And so today I'm responsible for my gifts and you're responsible for yours. So ask yourself, how, how are you using your gifts? Are you using your God-given gifts for a God-word mission? You know, maybe you don't have the type of gifts that Samson has. Maybe you, you haven't been granted you know, power to pick up a gate uh, out of the ground or to manually assassinate a lion. But you do have the gifts that God's given you. You do have the power that God's given you. And you're responsible for that before your maker. And you know, you're responsible for you and God's responsible for God. And as for God, my second takeaway is this, that God will have his way in human history. In fact, let's read the most difficult verse in all this again. Verse four of chapter 14, when he was going after into plunging himself into this lifestyle, when he when it started with his love for this woman in Timnah, it says his father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. See, the Lord knew that he could use Samson's weakness. It's not saying that he was with Samson and all Samson's motives were God's motives. He was saying, you know what? These people are so intermingled with death that the only way I'm going to bring life is to use Samson's sin to make a separation and a distinction into which I can work my historical work of redemption. And so he uses his sexual perversion and addiction and vindictive and impulsive nature to bring that about. And we can know that all the while God has been preserving a remnant of his people and God's sovereignty. We can know that Ruth 1, the very first words of Ruth 1, in the days of the judges ruled is the first words. And it goes on to tell the story about what God was doing that we might not see. And still today, even in the worst of sin, God is still doing things that we can't see. And God will have his way even through the ugliest parts of human sin. You know, it was the Jews and the Romans and your sin and mine that God used the ugliest of the uglies to do the best of his best work when he accomplished what he accomplished on the cross to atone for our sin. In fact, it's when Peter says in Acts 2, he says to the Jews, he says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed in the hands of lawless men. So what was going on in the crucifixion of Jesus? Was it lawless men having their way or was it God having his way? And the answer is yes. And God will always have his way. So God's going to do him and his things, and you do you. But God will have his way. Finally, Jesus, third takeaway is Jesus is the prototype to, to Samson's antitype. Let me just go through a, a quick list of some remarkable inverse correlations between Samson and Jesus. You know, Samson's birth was foretold by an angel and this is reminiscent of another angelically foretold birth that we now, a few thousand years later, that we, we, we remember that birth as year zero in history's calendar. Samson, like Jesus, 
was to be set, set apart as holy from infancy and to abide by a standard. But Jesus internally lived out that standard and he honored his parents in spirit and in truth. Samson and Jesus were both also enigmatic, but Jesus used parables to communicate and yet conceal truth at the same time for his redemptive purposes to to communicate truth, whereas Samson used riddles to defy the truth of God. Samson overlooked his people and turned his back on his people at Hebron. But Jesus, it says, set his face like flint towards Jerusalem, and he went to die on behalf of our sin. And when that happened, when that moment came of death, Samson was, was there and he surrendered even with a fight. But Jesus gave up the fight and, and surrendered willingly. And when captured, both were tormented. But Samson was tormented because of his sin, whereas Jesus was tormented because of Samson's sin and because of ours. Now, as I draw to a close, let me remind you that though this book is really raw, that's why I have a passion for this book. It's really my story. I grew up just a typical young man. I had so many impulsive things ruling me and sexual appetites, and I acted shamefully, I spoke shamefully, and I thought extra shamefully. And yet, like most people, I kind of hid my shame in a hiding place of lies. And in that place, I encountered the raw and real love of Christ. Through a radical student-led movement, I was made to witness the love of Christ exposed. It just tore me open for who I was. And I soon found that I no longer had to hide. I could just come to Jesus and confess my sin and it was forgiven. It was already out there. I didn't have to hide. I didn't have to be insecure any longer. And this just produced this joy that I used to hide in my sin. And I could just be loud with my confession now. There was so much freedom, even in my loudness. And even with this, God gave me a unique passion to call others out of their hiding as well out of that place that might feel comfortable, but it's just a place of bondage and shame. And with that passion, I tapped into a gift that God gave me. And so today I'm preaching and there are people that God's called me to help shepherd. People that are loved by Jesus that I'm responsible for in some way. And yet people in so many ways are still hiding in one way or another, whether it's part of your life or part of your heart hiding with shame and insecurity. And for me, this is, I just want you to know, this is really hard to reconcile for me. Your shame was already nailed to the cross. And Jesus is alive. And there's so much joy that I want to share in the inheritance with you. And I want to have a big loud celebration of our forgiveness because nothing can separate us. Samson's not separated from it. So why would you hide? I don't want to pick at scabs or push you further into hiding, but whatever I can do to call you into a celebration, I want to do. And if anything, the book of Judges shows us that God loves sinners. See, God didn't just use Samson's sin for his own kingdom. I believe that God dearly loved Samson. And even if that last moment 
of faith right at his death was the only moment where he responded to the love of Jesus. It was enough for Jesus. And this shows that God is so powerful that he can cause even the the ugliest of sinners to be preserved to the final day as saints because of his power. And he can preserve you no matter what you go through. I was going through uh, worship after taking communion today, receiving communion, and God was speaking to me. Hey, that thing that you were grieving about last night and your, your impatience with your kids and your habitual besetting sins. Peter, I'm still with you. I'm still your savior. And we can, we can celebrate. God saved Samson, and how is that? I want to read one more verse before we close. Let's read this again. Judges 6, 16.30. So the dead whom he killed with his death were more than those whom he had killed with his life. There's something in there that, that's for you. That's why we can be saved. And it's not what you might initially first see. It's not that God, God was so pleased with Samson killing so many of his enemies that that atoned for his sin. No, it's, it's really demonstrated in the reverse. That if you remember, Jesus' life was so much the opposite of Samson's life, but more importantly, his death. In fact, leave this verse up here. Think about Jesus. So the dead who Jesus made alive in his death were more than those who he healed in his lifetime. That's the secret. Second Corinthians says, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin so that we may become the righteousness of God. Would you pray with me? Holy Spirit, we thank you. We thank you that there's so much freedom. We can receive communion and celebrate something that's strange probably to the world. We're drinking the blood of our God and eating his flesh because we, in you we have true sustenance that the ugliest of human sin can be exposed. That any of my addictions, the things that maybe I've given up on myself about, the things that I still struggle with, the things that so shame me of my past, no sin, nothing in past or present, no height nor depth can separate us from the love in you. And we ask that you would give us the courage, uh, the, the clarity to respond rightly. Show us how to respond, Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit, as we close, he's going to begin to speak to you. He's going to say, you need to respond like this. And I just want you to, to hear him. What, what is the Holy Spirit asking you to do? Is he asking you to simply sit and, and sit at his feet as a, as, a, as a child and say, I receive your love. I, I, I give in. I, I receive you. I'm, I, I'm your child. Your, your we, my weaknesses, my sin, I receive you as my father. And I give you my life as your child. Maybe you're supposed to to sit here and just give your life to the Father who sent his son for you to know that you're precious no matter your struggle with sin. Maybe you're you're supposed to, to join a growth group and just come with it. Come with all the confession of your sin and your struggles and just just to come into the, the joy of freedom. Maybe there's something you're supposed to use your gift for that God would empower you for his mission. Lord, I'm asking you to seal what you're speaking. Thank you, God. Amen. Can we stand to our feet, please?
Next week, we are going to finish the book of Judges when I'm in Mexico with Joshua coming up to preach our final sermon in the series. And I've been delighting in this, and I encourage you to continue to read through the book. Um, Also, a few quick announcements before we dismiss. We will have Equip uh, after our second service today. It's a one-hour meeting that we equip people to help minister within our growth groups. And anyone's welcome to that if you're wanting to participate and help lead growth groups. um, You're welcome to that. Uh, Tomorrow, we are going to be engaging in a day of fasting and prayer with a 7 a.m. special prayer meeting right here. I I encourage you to join us. If you have any questions about that, you can see us at our uh, connections table and get in the communication line with turning in your your connection card if you haven't been getting emails about that. Um, I want to encourage you that last month we, we met our budget. So those of you who are giving, you consider this church your church. I want to thank you for continuing to participate with us in that area of discipleship and bless you. Uh, we're dismissed. Thank you.